You're listening to The Morning Muster, where we get sailors together to listen to the weather report and, well, to talk about the most important topics of the day. So grab a cup of hot chai. Or a coffee. I'm Teresa Carey. And I'm Ben Carey. This podcast is produced by Morse Alpha. We offer rigorous coastal and offshore sail training expeditions. Check out morsealpha.com. Our friends Katie and Lyle at SunPowered Yacht helped us expand our solar array. They're SunPower authorized dealer and offer both flexible panels and fixed frame panels ranging from 50 watts to 410 watts. These are super high efficiency solar panels, which means more power in less space. Katie and Lyle are both sailors and have lived off the grid for over eight years. They provide free consultation to help you size and build a DIY system. Check out their website for more info, sunpoweredyachts.com, and use the promo code MORSEALPHA to get 10% off their flexible panels. Today's podcast is about outfitting a boat for blue water cruising. And we have two experts with us. First, we have Pam Wall, who is a longtime mentor of ours. She sailed around the world with her family of four aboard their Freya 39 Canderic, which they built and outfitted themselves. She has since gone on to consult with many cruisers about outfitting their boats and worked for West Marine for a number of years in that same capacity. Uh, We also have our former student, Barry Kennedy, who is in the midst of it all right now with uh, his outfitting his new boat. I think it's a Garcia 48, right, Barry? Garcia 50 Pessoa. Oh, my God. Okay, Garcia 50 Pessoa. Um, I'm sure it's a mess right now, and you've got parts all over the place and a million projects going on um, as you get ready to head to the Arctic. Is that right? Yeah, next summer, probably to Iceland, and then uh, this time next year, hopefully be arriving back in southern Chile for the Antarctic season for 22-23. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing it all come together, and I think I'm going to try to get aboard this spring, right? Yeah, that would be cool. See what happens. So uh, a big welcome to both of you. Uh, I mean, this is a huge topic, this outfitting a boat for blue water cruising. There's so much to think about. There's so much gear to consider, uh, as well as the boat itself. And um, I just, I guess we should start off with one one topic real quick. I don't want to get too deep in the woods on this one, but um, finding the right boat is is key. I know, Barry, you're, you're on your second boat. Um, Pam, I know you've had a few boats, I think. Is that right? Yep, just two. Just two. Okay, good. So, um, Barry, you're on your second boat? Yep. Okay, good. So what made you go to your second boat? Let's talk about it. Pam, I'm going to start with you on that. What was the best thing about your second boat versus your first boat, and why did you switch? <laughs> well, it's, it's really kind of a funny, uh, Benji, but uh, our first boat is very similar to our second boat as far as design. Our first boat was only 30 feet, and I was the only person who could stand up in it because I'm less than five feet tall. Uh, it had no toilet. It had a bucket. It had a one-burner kerosene stove. Uh, it didn't have an engine, and we sailed you know, back and forth to Europe, and it was wonderful when we were young and foolish <laughs> and had no children. But what happened was, of course, we both wanted children, and we knew that this little boat, which had a beautiful design would would sink with another potato chip aboard it, you know. So uh, we sailed back from Europe, and we were very lucky that a very good friend of ours, uh, Billy Nance, uh, 
purchased it from us and then we heard of a boat called Freya that had won the Sydney Hobart race three times in a row. And when we heard about that, my husband Andy, who was Australian and who raced in the Sydney Hobart race, he wanted to build a Freya, which almost had the exact same configuration as the little boat Carinade, but it was 39 feet instead of 30 feet. She was such a good um, heavy weather sailor, and also she was fast. And so that's that's how we started with our boat Kendarik, who is the boat that we ended up building from scratch and then sailing around the world and back and forth across the Atlantic three times. So mm. that's that's how we chose the hull. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can tell you a lot more about what we did with it later, but I'm anxious to hear from Barry. Yeah, me too. So about the first boat, uh, thinking that I knew things about sailboats, I didn't really know anything. And uh, after six years on it, I was looking for something that was a little bit bigger. Um, some of the places I tend to spend time in are very gear intensive. And the boat was just a little bit small for having to carry the amount of stuff and the autonomy um, that I was looking for. And I wanted an aluminum boat. And I was also looking for something with a very shallow draft uh, and a centerboard. And I started looking for, um, after spending a couple of seasons down in Patagonia, I got to see a lot of French boats and European metal boats. And I had a very specific um, things that I wanted on the boat for the design after doing a lot of sailing on my old boat. Um, I wanted a flush deck uh, forward of the mast. I wanted another sugar scoop transom. I wanted a lot of light inside the living area. Um, I wanted the ability to build a hard dodger. I wanted a cockpit that was fairly deep and protected. And so I had seen these Garcia Pessoas um, that were built between the 80s and about 2005. And I looked for a Pessoa 47 for two years. And uh, this 50 came up for sale uh, in New Zealand. And uh, I ended up purchasing it five days before COVID, sight unseen. <laughs> wow. Barry, can you clarify what gear intensive means? I see that. Um, you... Yeah. So when you spend time in, uh, let's say, Patagonia or Antarctica or South Georgia, there's just a lot more gear you need to carry between survival suits, bigger ditch bags, a second dinghy, dinghy shorelines, uh, you know, more anchoring gear. It's just, it requires a lot more stuff. Uh, to safely operate in some of these austere environments. Um, the stuff's bulky, it's big, it takes up lots of room. And plus, you need a dry suit, you need a wetsuit, you need dive gear, you need to be able to get at the prop. Like when you're in places where there's nobody else, you have to be fully autonomous and be able to deal with anything that can happen cruising and sailing in some of these really remote places. So that's what I mean by gear intensive. Right. And that's, that's, that's what you're interested in doing is all these remote lake locations. I don't know. The French Polynesians sounding better by the day. <laughs> uh, it does sound pretty good right now, but the, all, it all sounds good. Pam, when you were outfitting Kandarik, what uh, was one of your top priorities? What were your top priorities as far as what you were thinking about? Well, kind of like Barry, we absolutely wanted a flush deck, for sure, for sure. Uh, either for high latitudes or for low latitudes, we, we wanted that. We did not want to have a doghouse. Uh, that could be damaged by a sea or a, you know a heavy wave coming aboard. We also knew that we wanted to have a, a, a sort of a, a what we call a slutter rig, uh, where we could use a, a removable inner forestay for a staysail in extremely heavy weather. Um, we also wanted to have a trisail track up the mast so that uh, Barry. It sounds like we're going to to uh, 
high latitudes, but we we really weren't. But we we were planning on it. But, but um, Andy died, so we never got to to do that. But I mean, things like to to make it easy sailing in heavy weather. We wanted to make it easy uh, to get the right sails for the right conditions, but also at the same time. Uh, keep the deck completely uh, uncluttered. We didn't want to clutter the deck with anything, even a, a life raft. Uh, to, to us, the important thing was a small cockpit, but a comfortable one like Barry's. Uh, a bridge deck was absolutely necessary so that if we ever got water in the cockpit, it wouldn't run down the companionway hatch. You know, we had to think of everything because there were no plans for this boat whatsoever. But those kind of things were very, very important. Having the anchor uh, chain locker well aft so it didn't bury the bow, the weight of the chain didn't bury the bow in, in heavy seas. Just, just just little things like that. Very small portholes that were waterproof that couldn't be uh, blown in. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the same sort of things that we thought about when we, were, we chose the Norsemen. A lot of the same features, you know, the bridge deck and the flush deck and the uncluttered, the small cockpit. Um, it sounds very familiar to all the decisions, you know, all the features we wanted in a boat as well. Yeah, so. well, you know, um, it's, it's a matter of uh, comfort and safety. Those are the two things that you have to take into consideration. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, even, even something as, what shall I say, primitive as a boom gallows, is so necessary on a boat, and today nobody has boom gallows anymore. And yet, mm-hmm. when you're when you're in the condition where you're using a trisail, and that boom is just swinging around, if you don't have a um, a boom gallows to to lock down the boom, that boom is banging back and forth, and the topping lift is chafing at the top of the mast, and the main sheet is in really tight, and everything like that. So. Right. I did have a boom gallows on the North Sea and the Bristol Channel Cutter and did fly a trisail on those boats. And uh, yeah, it is invaluable. Plus, they're also beautiful, aren't they? Yeah, right. I must say. Yeah. Um, yeah, did, did love them. Uh, we do not have them on the Norseman right now. However, we have gone to a very deep, deep third reef as an alternative to flying a trisail. So that's that's sort of the and solution we have then. fourth reef actually, on this boat for the same reason, yeah. We did uh, have a storm jib built, and we fly that on the Inner Force Day. We also have a slutter rig, like you have mentioned, and find that to be super valuable. That's that's almost a go-to for heavy weather in in a replacement of the trisail. Is using something up forward on an inner force deck. Yeah, but then the you know the boat is better balanced. I think when you have both the main and uh, a headsail up. Uh, mm-hmm. And now I'd love to talk about some of the actual gear that people are putting on their boats. We I, we've been through a race. We've I've been through the arc rallies, and both of those operations have long lists of gear requirements. And I would like to just talk about some of that and some of your top priorities. As far as safety goes, one of them, uh, of course, we should chit-chat about, I think, Pam, you'd mentioned already, was the life raft. And I'd love to hear what you wanted to say about that, as well as, Barry, what you, what your opinions are on that. You, you, you won't like this. You won't like this. And a lot of people will be going, oh, my God. Um, we never had a life raft. Uh, we had a sailing dinghy. Um, and if anybody has ever read Mutiny on the Bounty, you'll know why Andy insisted on having this sailing dinghy that had watertight compartments and everything that you would need for four people for six weeks in these watertight compartments. Um, he was never going to jump into a life raft if he 
had the necessity of doing that. He was going to sail someplace and get us back to safety. You know, here I am talking to so many people about outfitting their boats for blue water sailing, and I always tell them they should have a life raft, but we never had a life raft. So I, I uh, can't that's talk interesting. about it. I mean, you, you can talk about it because you, you have an option there. It might not be a life raft specifically, but it's a lifeboat. And, uh, but that's the same thing we have on our boat. We have a Portland Pudgy, which serves the same function that you're talking about with watertight uh, compartments and room for gear and all that and a sailing rig, et cetera, et cetera, um, and designed for four people. So it is the same thing. We have the same thing aboard that you do. Oh, you do. So, But do you have a life raft as well? Uh, yes, I do as well. Yeah, it's a good point. We have we have six or to eight people on the boat at a time, so our Portland Pudgy is only rated for four, which is why we have the life raft as well. Well, sure, sure. Yeah, yep. and Barry, what about you? Um, yeah, I'm a fan of life rafts. Um, having flown offshore and flown maritime search and rescue and had training on how to use life rafts and getting in and out of them, I think they're a good tool. I think like any piece of safety gear, if you don't know how to use it correctly, it's probably not worth anything. You know, the adage is you the only time you want to get in a life raft is when you step up into it. And I kind of agree with that. But there's a lot of tricks and techniques to being able to get in and out of a raft and big seas. So I think taking a course, uh, an at-sea survival course, is a pretty important thing if you plan to go do some ocean crossings and, and be in the raft. I also think a raft is good because if you have to get in the raft, there's probably a good chance that something bad may have happened. Um, a severe knockdown, a demasting, and there's a good chance somebody could be injured. And in my opinion, a raft provides a lot more shelter and opportunity for crew members than just a small like sailing dinghy kind of thing. So my preference would be a raft. Um, a couple quick comments about rafts. Right now, six to eight month lead time on a lot of rafts, um, which is crazy. I purchased one in September for delivery in April. Uh, and the other uh, thing I think is important, uh, having found being in some unusual countries, is look at their life raft uh, manufacturer and find one that has lots of service centers around the world. Because a lot of the rafts have uh, limited service centers. So, for example, Viking has more service centers worldwide because of all the Solus rafts they, they manufacture. Um, so any place that's got big fishing ports or offshore oil, there's probably uh, a Viking service center. Uh, so being able to get that raft service on whatever interval it is, like three years, is pretty important. Um, in a lot of countries, especially in South America, they won't let you out of port um, without proof or you can have a safety inspection to get your clearance. And if your raft's out of date, you, you're not going anywhere. So looking at the logistics <laughs> of maintaining that piece of equipment, too, is also really important. You know, that's a very good point, um, and Barry, and also for people who have valises and they keep them down below. I heard this horrific story about uh, the Transpac race where the, the boat was sinking. And instead of grabbing the handles of the life raft down below in the valise, they grabbed the, the wrong line in the, in the life raft inflated down below. And of course, they couldn't get it out the hatch. You know, so you, you have to, just exactly what you said, you have to know how to use it, mm. that's really, really important, not just to have it aboard. That's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. Interesting point about the Pudgy is it does have auto-inflating uh, uh, canopy, which I think is a nice feature. We think. I mean, you know, luckily, you know, touch wood, I'm touching wood. Uh, we never had to use it. <laughs> 
Yep. All right, let's switch gears. I would love to talk about, Pam, you mentioned something earlier about um, sales, and I'd like to talk about downwind sales for a little bit, see what you have to say. I'd like to know about what you have on your boats, Barry. Uh, yeah, so in this refit, it's a whole new suit of sails, and they're being done for me by Phil Auger at Zoom. He did the last set of high-latitude sails. He also did uh, a cruising code zero. Um, it was kind of a joint design between him and Jamie Gifford, and I used that crossing the Indian Ocean. Um, so this boat for downwind sails, it came with a big symmetric spinnaker, which I trucked down to bacon sails to see if I could flog because there's no way I'd ever fly it. And um, I'll probably have the code zero, um, maybe an asymmetric. And then deep downwind, uh, a lot of times I pull out and run wing, wing and wing um, with the pole. So that'll be my three options for downwind sailing. Mm-hmm. And uh, on your on your pole, what's your what's your procedure there? You have one pole, uh, one pole, yeah, and uh, four guy, half guy, um, with like permanent fair leads for them, basically on the on the four guy and um, permanently rigged guys on the pole. So you just pretty much gotta like take the pole up, grab the line, run it through. Um, yeah, pretty simple. Great. Uh, and Pam, what about you? Well, don't forget the the, the sailing I've done. Unfortunately, hasn't been in what you, you young people would call modern times, okay? So uh, we carried with us, of course, we carried three spinnakers. Uh, uh, they were all, well, they were all except the, we carried a half ounce, which was a symmetrical spinnaker. And that was the greatest thing in the doldrums, I want to tell you, uh, that half ounce spinnaker. Then we carried a three quarter ounce asymmetrical. And then we carried a very small uh, ounce and a half storm spinnaker. And I have to admit, we, we used all three of them. And when, when we left, there was this new thing called an ATN spinnaker sleeve. And we got a sleeve for each one of them. And I tell you what, uh, having those, those spinnaker sleeves made a whole different world of ease uh, deploying the spinnakers and retrieving the spinnakers. It was fantastic. But like Barry, uh, we often went wing and wing with the Genoa. And we could reef the Genoa easily just by easing the pole forward uh, under heavy conditions. And we did have two poles, uh, Barry. And I have pictures of sailing directly downwind from Fort Lauderdale to Bermuda the whole way with the symmetrical spinnaker with two poles. So we were going dead downwind, which, of course, we never would do otherwise if we didn't have the two poles. And also, Barry, do you have a topping lift on the end of your... Your downwind pole? Uh, well, there's a pole. Yeah, I guess you could call it a topping lift. The pole's on a track. And so... Yeah. Right. Pole on a track on the mast. Yeah. Yep. 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 That, and sure. you know what? For those of you who don't know, that's the only practical way of using that spinnaker pole so that the pole is on the track, on the mainsail, mm -hmm. instead of down on the deck in chalks. Agreed. Agreed. Ours is the same, and it makes it a much easier deployment. Well, I want to ask you guys about comms that now we're going to get into some modern times here i'm a big fan of the uh, iridium go that's a simple solution that's very easy to to uh install and it gets gets everything we need it gets weather it gets communication with the wife and the family at home and i found that to be uh, an easy access product for us it's not very expensive either i've had a go for seven years They've kind of got a shelf life as i've been told from iridium um so i'm on my second one but same thing you know it gets me what I want, my email, my weather files, 
and being able to text. Um, and so it's probably the cheapest solution. Um, I don't need lots of bandwidth. And then I also have a, um, an Iridium sat phone that I bought on eBay or something that is kept in the ditch bag with a laminated list of MRCC numbers uh, that's got a very limited SIM card on it that can be topped up by somebody on shore, um, basically for comms in the event of a ditching. Mm, that's a good option. Pam, what have you found to be popular? <laughs> well, if I speak for myself, all I had was a ham radio. Oh, um, I know, I know, I know. That's don't right. Don't forget, Benji, the sailing that we did was long before any electronics or communication. Yeah. Um, so um, the ham radio for me was fantastic. I made so many friends around the world that I'll never see, but that I talked to. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they were able to patch me into my parents when I had to uh, try and find them and see how they were doing. So I really am not one to be able to talk to you. I, I still don't have electronics on my boat. Having such few electronics was, was wonderful, wasn't it? Oh, li- well, listen, we didn't even know what we didn't have. You know what I mean? It was mm-hmm. use what we had, which was celestial navigation, a ham radio, uh, dead reckoning, and paper charts. Sure, sure. And there's such value in that experience of like celestial navigation or paper charting where you're, you're so involved in the every minute detail of your passage uh, that you, you somewhat lose when you, when you just turn on a piece of electronics. All right, I want to switch gears. I want to talk about something that you're both had on board your boat that was just pure comfort that you're like, I'm not going to go offshore without this thing. Not a safety piece of gear, not a comms, not a sail or whatever it is. Just something that you're like, I need to have this on the boat for me. Well, I, I can start I can start with one. Um, and, and Andy learned this, you know, on Little Karen A, having lee cloths that were attached to the outboard side of the bunk instead of the inboard side because, you know, with heavy canvas, and it made all the bunks at sea, you know, curved, because you could, you, you tied off to the overhead with uh, rolling hitches, so you could adjust it when you got into it. And it was like being in a cocoon, rather than in a, an L-shaped bunk that, you know, just had a leeboard or something up. Mm. And I want to tell you, they were, fan- they are, and still are, absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at the inboard side, yeah. exactly. Yeah, Barry, what you got? Anything yet? Yeah, totally. So for like going to sea for passages, the two things that I wouldn't want to go without is one, my sextant, just because I like to keep busy. It makes the day go by fast. And then two, my pressure cooker. Uh, <laughs> sounds kind of weird. No, no, no. That sounds super sensible. Yes, yeah. it does. Super sensible because of propane, right? Are you using propane to cook? Yeah, totally. And it just sure. makes it so easy to throw it in there at whatever you're eating in there. You get one pot that's minimal propane and one easy mm-hmm. cleanup, but yeah. Great. Those are those are good ones. Uh, propane saver for sure. Um, self-steering. I want to move on to that and talk about what you got going on in your boats there. We, ha- we have a monitor wind vane for us. And uh, is anybody using a wind vane? Uh, I had a hydro vane on the last boat and put 25,000 miles on it and really liked it. But on the new boat, um, I made a decision that the uh, wind vane probably wasn't the best piece of gear for the boat. And so I installed a redundant autopilot system instead. Mm-hmm. But the wind vane's good because it teaches you how to sail. I think that was like on the last boat, that's what really taught me how to sail was the hydrovane wouldn't work if, you know, your sails weren't balanced. And so the wind vane's a great tool on the right size boat. 
um, or the right displacement boat, I think. You know, I've, I've heard arguments from manufacturers that they work on bigger boats, but I think that if it's matched up as an appropriate piece of gear, it's they're invaluable. Uh, and those, if if anybody's not familiar with the wind vane, it uses the the wind to steer the vessel. You set it on, you set the wind vane on a particular point of sail, not a particular heading or a particular course. It's uh, close reach, close haul, beam reach, etc. You set the boat up on that particular point of sail, and it will keep the boat on that point of sail. Which means that if you do have a wind shift your course will change. Pam, did you have a wind vane on your boat? Always, uh, always. And we went through about uh, four different kinds. And, uh, you know, we had the first Aries, then we had the second Aries. On Little Carinade, we had a gunning, uh, which was pretty much like uh, I get farm equipment. <laughs> and and uh, uh, we always, always uh, used the wind vane, except in heavy weather. Um, even just because the waves seem to slew us around so much um, in the heavy higher latitudes that um, if it was bad weather, like crossing the Mozambique Channel or something like that, where the seas were just incredible, uh, we'd always have uh, someone on the helm. Yeah, I'm a big fan. I, f- I found they worked so great for us. And, and we had one on the small boats and we put one on Norseman uh, when we got this boat, and it's been great. It's a monitor wind vane. <clears throat> That's all I've ever owned, and, and you know, I stuck with something that worked because I, I knew it worked for us before, so we bought another one. Right, but you know, a lot of people have to remember that with wind vanes or autopilots, it doesn't matter. Someone always has to be on watch. That's and a great point. This is what used to really annoy me because uh, we would see boats like out in the middle of the Pacific or the Indian Ocean, and there wasn't a soul in the cockpit and the boats were going along, you know, with the autopilot or the wind vanes. And to me, that's the most dangerous thing anybody could ever decide to do. Yeah, we were talking to some folks at one point who were like, yeah, we stand watch from down below. We're watching movies. Yeah, it's a great, oh, I, love, I, I love being on watch. We watch movies down below, it's great. Yeah, well, you know, my kids uh, always took uh, their time at the helm. We, we, we had two hours on six hours off when the children were steering. And we wouldn't even let them wear headphones uh, to listen to music because you, every sense you have in that cockpit when you're on watch, you should be using. Mm-hmm. We have that same rule, no headphones. Yeah. Uh, Barry, you brought up a really good point, and um, so did Pam, about skills preparation and knowing how to use your equipment. And I want to just talk about that a little bit. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, there's plenty of maritime training centers all up and down the East Coast. And large port cities, typically ones with uh, oil and gas or yachting and basic sea survival courses are, are run most of the time weekly, but they teach you really good skills about what to do if you do get in the water, how to float, how to use your clothing, how to get in and out of a raft, how to deploy a raft. Um, and I think that those are invaluable skills. You know, as a helicopter pilot, I used to have to go through it every year. Um, and then, but they transfer on to the boating things. And so, you know, have, not having to learn something in anger is always a good thing. Um, and these courses are a couple hundred bucks. So I think they're a well uh, worth investment for somebody who wants to do offshore sailing. Mm-hmm. And speaking of which, I got a raft for you, Benji, if you want one for one of your courses to pop next year. Ooh. Oh, yes. That sounds okay. great. Cool. Um, <clears throat> yeah, some of the stuff we've done, um, I've, I've done firefighting. Has anybody done anything like that? Firefighting class? Yep. Totally. Well, I've done mo- all the offshore uh, worker stuff like firefighting and the H2S stuff and the sea survival. It was all part of our job description. 
Right. Yeah. 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 Firefighting. Besides just the life, the life raft and the PFD sort of training, there's there are all sorts of th- other things to think about, like flares, getting to use flares, and starting and using um, fire extinguishers. Um, setting up. How about setting up the emergency tiller and setting up the drogue? What about the drogue? Love to talk about that in a second. But that's th- those are things that people have on. It's like one of those things people have on their boat, and they do not ever practice using. We have one on the boat. We like to get it out every trip on our boat. Same thing with the emergency tiller and and show people how that works because those things are invaluable. Like you said, you don't want to be learning those when you're in the middle of the emergency. Our uh, emergency tiller is a little complicated to install, so it would be very tricky to install if I had never done it before in a situation where I needed it. But you're right. I mean, people need to know, you know, because if the situation ever happens, you don't want to be reading, okay, now where's the first thing you do in the second, you know, you don't want to be reading something. And as as far as uh, drugs and, and things like that, I'll tell you what, I once did a video, if you want to go on my website and see the video I did on six different kinds of drogues, and I was on my dock and I pretended to deploy them, and then I pretended to retrieve them. And I want to tell you something, even though I wasn't moving, I wasn't at sea, the boat was at the dock, you know, (laughs) some of them are so easy to use, and some of them are so difficult to use, especially if your boat is being tossed around. It, it was an incredible, the difference that I found. You go, go to my website sometime and read about mm-hmm. the drugs, the different drugs and see what I mean. Uh, Barry, I feel like you, you have deployed one. Is that true? Uh, not in anger, but um, I had a serious drug on the last boat and there was a, one that came with this boat as well. And I, I don't know, after all the heavy weather sailing time I have, I guess my philosophy is, is that I would rather keep moving in the right direction with a minimal amount of canvas than deploy a drogue. Like just the physical exhaustion of getting the thing back in. And it's kind of a Skip Novak quote too, is there's no such thing as too much wind, just too much canvas. Um, I, I would rather have go be going very slowly in the right direction if it's safe with the sea state than deploy a drogue. Um, that's just kind of my philosophy. I got you. So yes, Barry, I would love to get that life raft going back to that from you. We would use that on our training expeditions uh, and jump in with our PFDs on and jump into that life raft and give it a shot. That would be a treat. Perfect. Sweet. Also, um, Benji, you know, it's a really good idea to take a medical course as well. It is. Um, I've taken the Woofer course uh, a number of times, as has Teresa, Wilderness First Responder. And I think that's a great course, even though Sometimes those courses are geared towards uh, the woods. They still give you real good training on the first thing you need to do for so many different uh, injuries. Yeah, well, you know, there's a bunch of good books out too, very good books by, you know, sailing doctors. Right. And I, I took a three-day course and uh, it was <laughs> it was really good. I mean, we sewed stu- sutures and chicken breasts and, and things like that. And I felt very, very good about that, you know. So it was a three-day course and it was well, well worth it. That sounds great. Barry, have you done a, a medical training like that? Uh, yeah, I did a wilderness EMT years ago, and yeah. I had a WFR for a while. And then every year we would do basic first aid and CPR at work. Right. Yeah, you're in that business where you, safety is a real big thing. So that, that helps with you, I think, as well. Benji, I have one. Yeah. And I think you and I agree on it, but I'm not. Oh, boy. I think I is uh, halyards and topping lifts led back to the cockpit or or used from the mast. 
True. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I know you're a fan of, of things at the mast, aren't you? Well, the only reason that I, I can say that, yes, is because, you know, Andy said, every time I go on deck, I look up, I look down, I look around. But if I did that from underneath the Dodger, I would never do that. And he said, mm-hmm. I've saved our boat so many times from little things that could have become big things. So he would never have stuff led back to the cockpit. And yet other people uh, would never leave the cockpit, the safety of the cockpit. So um, I just think it's, it's you know, both ways are okay for those who want them that way. Mm-hmm. Of course, we have the great big, huge uh, monkey bars, we used to call them, uh, so that even if you were working on the lured side, uh, you would be protected while working at the mast. Yeah, we have large granny bars on our vessel, and we and I love them. What do you have, Barry? Oh, there's granny bars, and, and I'm a firm believer of uh, everything at the mast. I think for the reasons outlined, it's safer. So, And again, with a little bit of practice and like system in place, I can put a reef in by myself at the mast in like two minutes, right? And I've got a routine, and like I teach people how I want it done because I think it's safe. And yeah, it's all about being familiar with the equipment you have and knowing how to use it. Yeah, and, and that goes on to something that about the safety with going to the mast is that um, how many times have those lines led to the cockpit gotten snarled and you end up having to go to the mast anyway when they get snarled. And if you're not used to going forward and you're not familiar with how to get there safely, so it really is best to practice and habitually go forward and be used to doing it so that when you have to go up there, even if you have your lines led aft, when you have to go up there, you can do it safely. Okay, super. Barry, any thoughts? Um, I think one thing that's important uh, when doing refits or purchasing a boat is, and I see it a lot, is make you know, understanding the context of where you're going to use the boat. Um, it's really easy to get sucked into you know, bigger boat, flashier gear, lithium batteries, all this kind of stuff. And uh, where, depending on where you're going, you don't need all that stuff. Um, and it adds expense that can take away from the time that you can spend out sailing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think it's important to kind of take a step back uh, when you start outfitting a boat and just kind of look at the geographical area that you're going to be operating in. Are you just going to the Caribbean or are you going to cross the Pacific? And I think that determines a lot about what you're looking for and gear you're going to buy or your gear you're going to refit. Uh, and the reality of it these days is that it's expensive and, and it's not going to get any cheaper. And one thing I tell people when they ask, you know, they buy a boat and they want to do all this stuff, I say, wait six months or a year before you start putting stuff or changing stuff on your boat. Because what you think you want or you think you need a year from now, may you may have a totally entirely different perspective of the gear you, you want to have on the boat. Barry, I mm. totally agree with you. I, I help so many people out with their boat and I always say to them, you know, don't put on what you want. Uh, go and sail the boat and find out exa- exactly what you say. Go and see what you absolutely need. When we bought uh, Rasinante in Panama, she had a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of gear. And we sailed the boat on a 3,000 mile shakedown sail back up to Maine from Panama. And we learned the boat. Before we did anything, we sailed 3,000 miles. And uh, we learned what the boat needed, what we needed, and what she didn't need. And we ended up removing so much gear off the boat and were able to really focus in on the gear that we did want to replace or 
upgrade or change. Go sail your boat a thousand miles and then start talking about what you want to put on it. A good friend, of, a mutual friend of uh, Teresa and Ben and mine went with them, Bill. And, yeah. and he said, not only was it 3,000 miles, but it was on the wind. <laughs> he said, <laughs> yes, said, it was. He said, we knew that boat could take anything by the time we got up to Maine. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. I mean, you leave. That's why so many people abandon their boats in Panama, because you either have to go through the canal or you have to sail back upwind. Yeah, and right. uh, so we sailed back upwind. And in the accelerated trade winds, no less, there's an area right above uh, Columbia there where the, the currents and the winds sort of funnel through, off, come off the mountains. The winds come off the mountains and funnel through. We basically beat our way up to Jamaica. It was pretty brutal in these accelerated trade winds. He told me all about it. He said, that boat can take anything. Said, I'm not sure I can, but the boat can. So. Yeah, it was a great shakedown sail. I got to say, it's a great place to uh, yeah. test, out your, test out your new boat. I don't recommend it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, budget and really getting an idea of what you need and what you don't need is is a really critical issue here because you can get overwhelmed. I know when I bought my, my first boat, my second boat, rather, the Bristol Channel Cutter, the, the gentleman I bought it from had been doing an extensive refit and never actually got to sail the boat. And, and I think that happens a lot. People get, it's fun to refit a boat. And no, it's, it's fun not. To, <laughs> I think it's, you know, it's fun for some people to refit a boat and think about the adventures they're going to have. And, and, and they get bogged down, though. They get bogged down in that phase and never actually realize their dreams. So, Barry, uh, along those lines, so what, what are you using as a criteria to decide what you want on the boat and what you don't want and, and keeping your budget down, et cetera, et cetera? How are you, how are you making those important decisions at this point? Um, so... I'm going to leave probably for an expensive period of time. And I'm looking at, uh, I also think when you make decisions on this, you have to look at what's going to be your period of ownership on a boat, right? So does it make sense in investing, doing a job or adding a piece of gear? Um, I'll just give you an example. You know, I'm looking at probably owning this boat, hopefully it'll be my last one, maybe seven years, plus or minus, maybe 10. Um, so I, I installed a lithium battery system because I did the math. It'll pay for itself. It, it's a greater capital expense up front, but you know, I'm, I knew that it's going to help out. There's a lot of little stuff on this boat that I could have put off a few years, but I'll probably be in a very remote place where the logistics of getting the gear that I need or even simple stuff like wire, tinned wire or umbrella or whatever would be very difficult. Um, and so I've taken an opportunity to kind of look at stuff that in the next couple of years that would require to be replaced or updated, but not necessarily done right now. And I've just made the decision that, you know, I've got stuff torn apart. I'm going to do some of these things in like a preventative focus, but I also have like a vision about where I'm going and how I'm going to use the boat, what I'm going to use the boat for. So I think that helps clarify a little bit, uh, about what to put on the boat and what to do or what makes sense, what what could cause further headache in a really remote place. Um, it's just easier to deal with it sitting in a shed torn apart where I can go on McMaster car or Defender and get stuff here tomorrow than trying to troubleshoot and do some of that stuff down the road. Yeah, it's great. Those are really valuable points. Uh, ben, I'd like just to stop, just to say two things that people should um, maybe look for if they're buying a new boat. Yeah, go ahead. And, and these two things were really important to me. Uh, one was a midship's uh, galley sink. 
So the sink always drains no matter what tack you're on. Mm. And the other one is uh, a head that is facing forward and aft with a, a bulkhead, a fore and aft bulkhead <laughs> on either side. So when you're on the toilet, the head, uh, mm-hmm. you can your body can lean against one side or another depending on what tack you're on. And I see so many boats with heads that face um, amidships. And of course, on one tack, you're being thrown back and the other tack, you're being thrown out. Mm-hmm. And uh, the funny thing is that Andy insisted on that. I want to tell you, that's the best place to read when you're off watch. <laughs> you know, sitting on the toilet seat with the cushion. Mm-hmm. And, and your, your shoulders are just kept right where they are. But those are two things that I think are really important to look for for comfort and also um, for galleys to have their sink strain no matter what tech you're on. Guys, I want to wrap it up. I want to thank you for your expertise and your experience here on this podcast. I appreciate everything you had to say and I look forward to following your adventures, Barry. Thanks, Ben. I want to thank you. This has been so much fun. Barry, it's been great to be able to talk to you again. Let's keep in touch and if I can help you get anything. All right, great. Thanks, Pam. All right, you guys. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to The Morning Muster wherever you get your podcasts or visit morsealpha.com. You can also find us on Instagram at Expeditions. The music is by Tim Erickson, my brother, and you can find him at timerickssonmusic.com. Until next time, stay found. <laughs>